We've reached the part of Deuteronomy that many people most think of when they think about the law, the Torah, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in particular. The first thing that comes to many people's minds is long lists of do's and don'ts. More don'ts, really. Lots of curses on those who are disobedient and archaic, often violent, usually highly patriarchal, rules and regulations that follow. Many people read these books as laying out obligations, in other words. The things the people of God have to do, unless they want God to be mad at them. This then contributes to the common misreading of the Bible, where people associate the Old Testament with legalistic rule following, in contrast to the grace and freedom and life offered by Jesus. One of the things that Meredith and I have tried to highlight so far in our series on Deuteronomy, and will continue to do as we make our way through the rest of the book, is that Deuteronomy's main point is not the rules and regulations and commands to obey themselves. Deuteronomy's main point is the grace and freedom and life that God desperately wants to offer to Israel. The rules and such are not obligations the people follow in order to earn salvation. They are the way in which the people can live out the salvation they've already received. They are God offering guidelines by which the people, all the people, can experience life and freedom together before God. Deuteronomy is a book about life and freedom first, and the rules are made to enhance that life, not to earn the life and certainly not to take away from it. This is what Jesus meant many years later when he said that the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. The rules and regulations aren't the point. They are practices by which people can experience life instead of death, freedom instead of slavery, grace instead of obligation. Chapter 14 of Deuteronomy starts with some of those thou shalt nots that people associate with the law of obligation. It starts like this. You are children to Yahweh your God. You shall not gash yourselves, nor shall you make a bald patch on the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and you Yahweh has chosen to be a treasured people to God out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. But if you're paying attention, the point of those verses is not the obligation, the thou shalt nots, as if they were saying, thou shalt not participate in these pagan religious mourning practices or else you'll make me angry. The point is what comes first and what comes last. First, you are the children of God. Last, you are a treasured people for God. God loves you and wants you to experience life the way any good parent would. So don't do these practices that lead to suffering and to death. It's so important for us to keep that framework in mind as we read Deuteronomy. The curses and rules and warnings aren't there to give vent to God's authoritarian violent side. They're there as a desperate attempt by a loving parent to scare their kids onto the right path, almost, to lay out the reality that these pagan practices are the road to death and to slavery, but that God's ways are the path to life and freedom. As Moses will say later in the book, choose life, not death. This comes out all the more at the end of chapter 14, which talks about, of all things, tithing. Tithing, or the giving to God of the first 10% of one's income, or harvest in the case of ancient Israel, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. 
a rule, an obligation in most people's minds, a tax that God's, God extracts from us. And we either obey or feel guilty for not obeying or explain it away as not relevant. But these verses open up whole new meanings if we read them in light of the framework that I just mentioned. You are God's children, God's treasured people. Choose paths that lead to life. In chapter 14, starting in verse 22, it says this, You shall surely tithe all the yield of your seed that comes out in the field year after year, and you shall eat before Yahweh your God in the place that they choose to make their name dwell, the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your cattle and your sheep, so that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God at all times. And should the way be too much for you, for you cannot carry it that far, as the place that Yahweh your God chooses to make their name dwell will be too far for you. When Yahweh blesses you, then you shall give in silver, and you shall bundle the silver in your hand, and you shall go to the place that Yahweh your God chooses. And you may give the silver for whatever your appetite craves, cattle and sheep and wine and strong drink, and whatever your appetite may prompt you to ask. And you shall eat there before Yahweh your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your household. And the Levite who is within your gates, you shall not abandon him, for he has no share and estate with you. At the end of three years, you shall take out all the tithe of your yield in that year and set it down within your gates. And the Levite shall come, for he has no share and estate with you, and the sojourner and the orphan and the widow who are within your gates, and they shall eat and be filled, so that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hand to do. This passage comes on the heels of several in Deuteronomy that proclaim God's intention to bless the people with abundance in the land. And along with that intention to bless with abundance is a constant refrain not to forget. As just one example, back in chapter 8, starting in verse 11, it says, Watch yourself, lest you forget Yahweh your God lest you eat and be filled and build goodly houses and dwell in them and your cattle and sheep multiply and silver and gold multiply for you and all that you have multiply and your heart becomes haughty and you forget Yahweh your God who brings you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slaves. So in light of these broader themes in Deuteronomy, what I want to suggest is that the rules around tithing need to be read not as obligations, but as practical tools of reminder and remembrance. Tithing is, in the context of Deuteronomy, a consistent practice of remembering. One tool among many that the people can use to be sure that they don't forget what is most true. So today, I'm going to highlight five ways tithing is intended to help the people, and us, I would suggest, to remember. First, tithing helps us remember what we have. As I've already said, this chapter is predicated on the expectation that God is going to bless the people with abundance, and the tithe will be the first 10% of each year's abundance. It's a tricky thing to, to translate the concept of abundance from a culture of subsistence farming and ranching, where wealth is measured as much in the size of your sheep herd as anything else, to the complex economy that we have today. Obviously, we have far more in some senses, than even the relatively wealthy did then. And yet, at the same time, we have far more economic obligations and uncertainty, debt and anxiety than many did then. They tithed from a yearly harvest, we from sometimes sporadic paychecks. And built into the tithe itself 
and we'll say more about this in a minute, is an acknowledgement that some don't have enough. And so this chapter is written, I think, mostly for the many who do have enough and not as much for those who don't. And those people who do have enough, they have more than enough, really. And most of us, too, if we're honest, have more than enough. Maybe not more than them, maybe not more than we want, but more than enough. And by choosing freely to take the first 10% of what we have and regularly giving it away, it can serve as a powerful reminder of that reality. I have more than enough. And so this 10% is proof of that. I can give it away and I'll be okay because Yahweh is my God. I am their child and I have enough. Which brings us to second, tithing helps us remember where it comes from. This was perhaps easier in the ancient world where the tithe was coming out of a harvest that literally wouldn't exist without the rain that God sent to water the crops. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to acknowledge that whatever we have is just as much a gift from God. That the whole narrative of, I deserve this because of my hard work and smarts and discipline and ingenuity is really a load of BS. Because even if that were true, where did those qualities come from? And what about all the other hardworking, disciplined, smart folks who don't have enough? What we have is God's, no matter which way we look at it. And in the Old Testament, there's a consistent theme that highlights that, that not only is all that they have dependent on the rain that God sends, but that it comes out of, it grows out of a land that belongs to God. Israel is consistently portrayed as tenants on land that is not really their own. Which brings us to, third, tithing helps us remember who God is. And not just that God is the God of all the earth and the source of all we have. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, makes the point in his commentary on Deuteronomy that it was entirely expected that landowners were due a tax from the tenant farmers who worked their land. That a percentage of the crop went to the owner of the land by rights. And that that percentage was far higher than 10%. But the Old Testament instead sets up a system where each family is supposed to own their own land. That there would not be any tenant-landowner relationships other than the one between each individual family and God. And what does God ask? Just 10%. Because our God is a God of life, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Not like all the other gods, not like all the other kings, not like all the other landowners who demand far more from us. And, and this is crucial to this whole idea, even the 10% that God is owed, God turns right around and gives it back. The tithe doesn't go into the temple treasury or the king's palatial splendor. It doesn't fill God's bank account because that isn't who our God is. Where does it go? Two places. And that's our final two points. Fourth, tithing helps us remember to enjoy it. Verse 26 says this. I'm going to read it again. And you may give the silver for whatever your appetite craves. Cattle and sheep and wine and strong drink and whatever your appetite may prompt you to ask. And you shall eat it there before Yahweh your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your household. 
God gives us more than enough, not just to sustain us, not so that we might anxiously muddle through, but so that we might rejoice, so that we might be filled with life and freedom and joy. And yes, this verse quite literally tells us to take some of our tithe money and buy ourselves a ribeye and a nice bottle of whiskey, or at least that's how I would probably use it. But it gives us the freedom with one caveat, that we would rejoice before Yahweh as we eat and drink whatever it is that our appetite craves. Yahweh is a king who demands a small percentage and then turns right around and gives it back so that we might enjoy the gifts of God with God so that we would remember to enjoy this life God has given us and to remember that it is God who has given it. This is, again, kind of hard to translate from a once-a-year harvest feast into our own context, but it seems safe to say that we should designate some of our tithe at some regular interval to buy whatever we want and then consciously to enjoy it in the presence of God. It is, again, a practice to help us remember, not a party for its own sake. We can have those too, but this is slightly different. (laughs) Now, I said that there was one caveat on this freedom to enjoy the tithe earlier, but maybe I should say there are two caveats because fifth, tithing helps us remember to help others join in. Many of the scholars I read on this passage pointed out that it would be virtually impossible to consume 10% of the harvest in one meal, no matter how lavish that meal was, although some bottles of whiskey do seem to come close. But this is an indication that this, what we have in Deuteronomy 14, is a supplementary practice to the regular tithing practices that are found elsewhere in the Old Testament. And there, you see something similar to how this passage ends, that the rest of the tithe is to be dedicated to the Levite, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. These are the ones who have no harvest to tithe from, no source of income. The ones who, as I acknowledged earlier, don't have enough. The ones whom God holds in high regard and watches over. For the Levites, they have no harvest because they are the tribe that was dedicated to serving God directly. They were the priests, the pastors, the leaders of worship, the ones who did not work out in the economy more broadly because they did the work of helping the people of God keep following God together. At least that's what they were supposed to do. (laughs) As with many things in the Old Testament (laughs) and today, uh, it didn't always work out that way in reality. But they, and then the foreigner, orphan, and widow are the ones who don't have a harvest of their own. In those other categories, those are people who have no harvest because they've either lost their land, whether due to misfortune or mismanagement or the death of their patriarch, or they are ones who have left their own homeland as refugees. And they too, because they have no land, have no way of participating in the broader economy and supporting themselves. God's vision that comes through in these instructions about tithing is not for poor pastors. It's not for those left out and left behind by the economy at large to struggle to put food on the table. God's vision is for a community that makes sure that their more than enough becomes all having more than enough because that's who our God is. And so that's who God's people should be. This is what at Pomona Valley Church, we use our care fund for, by the way. Just as in this passage, it is not an act of charity, a handout in the sense of giving something out of our benevolence to those less fortunate than ourselves. 
but it is instead an enacting of what is true of the kingdom of God, that all have the right to experience the joy and the abundance of God. And that it is the responsibility of the people of God who have more than enough to remember to help the whole community join in that enjoyment of God's abundance. And so if tithing is not an obligation, something that we have to do in order to be obedient to God, but instead is a tool to remember that we have enough, that what we have is a gift from God, that that God is a God of life and abundance and freedom and joy who desires for us to enjoy what we have in their presence and who desires for all people to be able to join in, then it means the question that some people have, well, do Christians have to tithe or is that just an Old Testament thing? That's a question that completely misses the point. Tithing for us is no more of an obligation than it was for the first hearers of Deuteronomy. And Tithing for us is no less a potential tool to remember than it was for them. Because we need to remember those true things just as desperately as the people of Israel did. And tithing can just as much help us to do that today as it did help them then. I suppose that there's an element of tithing that if it's for whatever reason not helpful, not a practice that will help you to remember, then don't do it. But at the same time, that would demand the further question, so what are the practices that will help you remember these crucial truths? And what are the obstacles keeping tithing from being one of those practices for you? When tithing stops being thought of as an obligation, it opens it up to be used freely, where maybe 10% is a source of anxiety, but 5 or 2 or 1% could serve the same purpose to help us to remember. In that case, Maybe something less than a literal tithe could be a discipline that helps us get started toward remembering. But that, I think, is a question for you to wrestle with, not for me to dictate to you. What practices do you have to help you remember what you have, to remember where it comes from, who God is, to remember to enjoy it, and to help others join in that rejoicing? Might tithing be such a practice? And might you intentionally use it in that way? These are foundational memories for the people of God, both in Deuteronomy and today. And having practices like tithing to help us remember is not an obligation, but nevertheless, it is essential. So when we were together uh, for a response, we pasted into our chat box a link to our giving page from our website. No, I'm just kidding. What we did is we worshiped together. One of our members helped us to sing And in that way to engage in another practice that helps us remember who our God is and to celebrate the abundance and joy that that God offers to us, their children. And then we celebrated communion together to remind ourselves that the things that we have in abundance are ultimately not the things that bring us life, but rather Jesus is the one who brings us life and that Jesus is more than enough in and of himself. So with that, I will leave you to Ponder what your practices might be to remember these important true things about God, about tithing, and about the world. See you next time.